This morning, I'd invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We will be finishing up our series on 1 Timothy this morning. And that means that we will be looking, beginning in verse 3, all the way to verse 21, which is a sizable chunk of Scripture. But it is one that all is, while it can be broken up, broken up into chunks, it, it, it all fits together. Paul has some important things for us to know, to be reminded of. He's drawing our attention to some important truths. But before we dive into God's Word this morning, to, to study it, and by, by His grace, we will allow it to study us, to examine us, to work in us. We need the Lord's help for this. So would you join me in prayer as we seek God's mercy? Father, this is your word. We pray that this morning as we read it, as we study it, that it will work itself into us. It will not be merely external, but that the, that the warnings of it, that the commands of it, that the glorious truths that it points us to, that it will move from our heads to our hearts. And that we will, by your grace and mercy, by the work of your Spirit within us, be changed. Help us, O oh God, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Years ago, before I was married, while I still had a head full of hair, I uh, was in college, and uh, my, between one of my years, between my junior and senior year of college, I did uh, an internship in an inner-city church in inner-city Philadelphia. It was a phenomenal experience, but part of one of those weeks, a pastor of the church, along, with, along whom I was working with, we took a trip, not just him and I, but a, a group of people from that church up into New York City, and there we worked with a couple of other churches doing a couple of other things. And, and one of the days while we were up in New York City, that one of the pastors in that area took us around on a tour of some of the different places of the city. One of the places he took as we were walking along, there were a number of shops. And while we got to this, this row of shops, one of the shops in particular, they were selling, it was just open stand really, selling all sorts of things. But one of those stands was selling Purses, bags, but really what looked like high-value bags, high-value names, high-brand names, Gucci and Armani and, well, I don't really know the rest, so I'm just filling in the blanks here. But I, I remember these were very expensive bags. I had heard about these names, and, and here, you know, we're seeing these bags, and they meant very little to me, but to the young women who were with us, it meant a great deal here with these bags, and they were really so cheap. But they weren't real. They were knockoffs. And the guy who was leading us along, he warned us, hey, just to let you know, you're not supposed to buy these. It's actually illegal to buy these. We're, you know, all, all these sorts of things. And so we, we move on, but some of the girls couldn't resist. And so they spent a little bit of money and got a knockoff purse, knockoff bag, and they were, even though they knew it was a knockoff, they were so excited. You know, they got it back on the bus as we were going back to Philadelphia just a couple of days later, but by that time, you could already tell certain things about it weren't right. The 
things, that, the, 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 the designs on it, the logos on it, that had been so bright and colorful before, were now faded. It had already, just within a short amount of time, started showing some wear that should not have been there. The purse themselves, they were opening up and looking at, even after a couple of days of use, they were showing signs of wear and tear that revealed that these were not high-end bags. So on the level of knockoffs, these weren't even expensive knockoffs. These were cheap knockoffs. Didn't matter to the girls initially, but over time, you know, that was 10, 15, 20, whatever dollars they, amount of dollars they spent, it was wasted. Knockoffs. We deal with that everywhere, in all times, in all places. We deal with that in Christianity too. There are knockoffs to Christianity. There are counterfeits to the real thing. Back in the early 1800s, the early 19th century, a counterfeit, a knockoff form of Christianity began to really arise and be taught and spread out from Germany. There, certain forms of teaching began to make their way from Germany across Europe here to the United States And it began to penetrate churches. It began to penetrate seminaries and academic institutions. And Christians and denominations and churches were being held captive. Different ideas were coming from Germany. One by name of, by, by, started by the, a man by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher. And he's not around to correct my pronunciation of his name. But he argued that Christianity couldn't be defined by creeds and truth statements. Really, Christianity wasn't about truth. It was about a feeling of the heart. It was about a a sense of love for other people and for God. In fact, other German theologians began to argue that to, to try to fashion doctrinal statements, truth statements, actually took you away from Christianity And that the way back was to abandon those truth statements and to accept a sense of divine, of love, of goodwill towards others. Other German theologians began to argue that the kingdom of God was not something to be expected, but rather the kingdom of God was here and now. It was here in the sense that wherever there was something that was good or praiseworthy or moral, that was the kingdom of God. And so for you and I to seek the kingdom of God was for you and I to do good in the world. And this gave rise by the early part of the 20th century to German theologians arguing for what became known then as the social gospel. That is, for, for people to get into the kingdom of God meant that they needed to become better, moral, just, righteous. And so that was, it was a part of seeking those things in the world, morality, justice, righteousness, all of us would agree that we desire those things for our land. Nobody goes to a country wanting it to see, oh, no, no sane person, no right-minded person wants to go to a land and see that it increases in immorality, in injustice, in unrighteousness. No one wants that. But there is a far cry between what was being hailed as Christianity and what we find in the Bible. Christians began to respond to this, and as as these teachings began to poison and infect churches and institutions and Christians, Christian leaders began to 
fall away. Churches, whole denominations began to fall away. Around this time, the Lord later raised up a number of leaders. One such leader was, by the, was a man by the name of J. Gresham Machen. Machen began to see all of this, these teachings infect his own denomination. He was a Presbyterian, and he was a part of, at the time, the Presbyterian Church USA. And he became intensely concerned over what he saw happening amongst the churches of his fellowship. He began to see that we were, that Christians were abandoning Christ, abandoning the gospel for the sake of something else, calling it Christianity, still gathering at church, still singing songs, still having a Bible open and, and, and read, but that the substance of it had completely changed and been altered. And so J. Gershom Machen wrote a book a hundred years ago, actually to this year, in 1923, he wrote a book entitled Christianity and Liberalism. Christianity and Liberalism. And you know what the most important word in that title is? It has long been suggested that the most important title, most important word of that title is neither Christianity nor Liberalism, but the conjunction, the word and. Because by that, J. Grisham Machen was saying something radically important. He was saying, it's not that you have Christianity and a different kind of Christianity, liberal Christianity and conservative Christianity. No, 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 no. That's not what we have here, Machen is saying. What you have is Christianity and something else entirely. You have Christianity and liberalism. You have two different religions, two different faiths, two different views of who God is, of what Sin is of who we are, of what Jesus is and what he has accomplished. All of these are two different visions and they do not correspond. One is genuine, one is counterfeit. One is true, the other is that cheap knockoff. It looks good for a time, but ultimately it's going to fade, it's going to fall apart. And this is Paul's point as he ends this first letter to Timothy. He is addressing a a form of knockoff Christianity, a form of counterfeit Christianity. And he is warning the Christians of this church, particularly Timothy. This is Paul's letter to Timothy, but it is a public letter that is meant to be read before his entire church. Remember, Timothy is pastoring, he is leading this church in Ephesus. And so this is not a a private letter meant merely for Timothy, but rather the whole church in Ephesus is to hear this and they are to do it, understand a couple of things. One, this is the responsibility of their church leaders. But two, this is their own personal responsibility. So Paul is warning Timothy and the Ephesian Christians and you and I this morning of counterfeit Christianity, in particular those who knock it off, those who counterfeit it. And Paul gives us a number of warnings. We, he, he defines what it is to be a counterfeit Christian in verse 3. That is, what it, what it is to be someone who counterfeits Christianity, a counterfeiter, someone who teaches false things. Verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise, and that word teaches otherwise may be translated teaches a different doctrine. That is, they, it is one Greek word, it, Simply heterodidascali, it is the opposite of orthodoxy, it is heterodoxy. 
If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not consent, does not agree to the wholesome, to the life-giving, to the healthful words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. Here he is defining what it is to be a false teacher. Someone who teaches that which does not accord with the word of God. With the words of Christ. He's not here thinking of a particular statement of Jesus. Just as Paul earlier can talk of the Bible as the words of Christ. So here he is talking about these words of Christ being all of scripture. Here is someone who teaches a different doctrine. But it's not just a different doctrine. Notice he says, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. They're not only teaching a different doctrine of Christ, they are teaching a different way of Christ. A doctrine or the way which accords with godliness. The teaching that accords with godliness. Here, these are people, are, they are either subtracting or adding to what God has said. Perhaps they are denying that what God calls sin is sin. And you have to understand why we as Christians, if you are not a Christian, you need to understand why we as Christians make such a big deal about calling what God calls sin, about calling it. It's not merely about trying to accord and stand with the Lord, although it is absolutely that. But it is understanding this. If we redefine sin, then we are doing two things. We are either A, we are, well, both A, taking upon ourselves an authority that belongs to God alone. He alone has the right to declare what is right and wrong. When we redefine sin, when we redefine right and wrong for ourselves, for our time, for our culture, for our world, we are taking on the place of God. And that in and of itself is the most supreme form of arrogance. We are doing something else. If we redefine sin, then we must redefine what salvation is. Because salvation is given by God to save us from our sin. Here, these are people who are out of step with Christ, denying key doctrines, perhaps adding to key doctrines, or denying the way of Christ, denying particular things, redefining sin, or perhaps they are adding to what sin is. That was the failure that we saw in Matthew chapter 15, which was read earlier. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of Christ's day, they had added to God's word. Their tradition, the tradition of man, had compromised the way that people were following after the Lord. So the Lord, Christ Jesus himself, tells them, your worship of me, your worship of the Lord, your worship of God is in vain because you substitute, you teach the commandments of men as if they were the doctrine of God. So you can find Christians doing this down through the ages, from the time of Paul to our day. You can find this in the 9th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries where Christians began to defend the practice of slavery, to redefine what sin is, to argue why slavery was actually a a good thing. You can find other writers in the 20th century, Christian writers, who would try to argue that greed was actually a positive for us. You can find Christians in various cultures who will justify all sorts of evil, violence, anger, murder, in some way or another. 
What are Christian leaders today declaring to be right that God has called sin? What are those things today that God calls sin, but our world we call okay? Is it the murder of the unborn? Redefining what a man and woman is? Living out and exploring the most perverse ideas and feelings we may have? Counterfeit Christianity redefines what Christianity is. It is something else entirely. And if you and I are not careful and we do not evaluate our beliefs and practices against God's word, you and I will easily fall into this. Which is why Paul warns against it. And we see this in the next couple of verses. He gives some descriptions of those who counterfeit Christianity. Those who are knocking it off. He says, these people, they are proud. And we discussed how they are proud taking on themselves an authority that does not belong to them. He is proud, knowing nothing. It's not that these people are unintelligent or ignorant, but it's that because they believe themselves to have this authority to redefine what is right and wrong or to teach what they believe rather than what God says, it's as if they know nothing of who God is. That is, they are outside of the faith and are not genuine believers. He is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy and strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wrangings, or we might say constant conflicts among people. Is this, this is a person who, who enjoys the argument, enjoys the debate, enjoys creating tension. As such, these are people who are, as Paul writes there, They are corrupt in their minds. They are destitute, robbed of the truth. More than this, you see something else, what drives them, their motivation. Because they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Do you see that? Godliness, religion, Christianity... It's a means of gain. Now, clearly in the context, Paul is talking about financial gain, but the kind of things that he's talking about, this can be extended to all sorts of gain. Perhaps it is influence, authority, power, respect, whatever it may be, but these are people who are interested in gaining for themselves, and they are leveraging God, leveraging Christianity for that end. It is a heady thing to to have your name written on a book. It is a heady thing to stand in front of people and and have them listen to you as you talk. To have people on the radio station who are listening. To to have followers online who are hanging on your word. This is a, a heady thing. And Paul is warning about this. Here, here are people who are morally deprived, corrupt, and they are leveraging God for their own personal gain. They are using God rather than seeking the Lord as their gain. And Paul tells us, verse 6, now godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness is great gain, especially as it is tied with contentment. When we are able to trust the Lord with what he has given us and what he hasn't. God has seen fit to give us some things. He has seen fit not to give us other things. We may have chosen differently, but we do not know what God knows. And if we did, 
and we had his goodness, his righteousness, we would want nothing else. And so we can be content in godliness, wedded with that contentment, is great gain. We may be rich in the world, but if we do not have this godliness coupled with contentment, we are spiritually impoverished. That is the implication here. And he goes on and gives some reasons why it is foolish to pursue earthly gain. He says, for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. Everything that we gain in this life is short-lived. It is temporary. It is here and gone again. More than that, verse 9 and 10, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and the snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The pursuit of gain is not only foolish because gain in this life is temporary, it is destructive. Pursuing more now, pursuing better now is not only foolish, it will destroy you and everything you love. It will lead you into temptation. It will lead your soul into trial. So what is the remedy? Verse 8, so having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Whatever God provides, hear the, the necessities. Paul himself backs this up with his life, doesn't he? He's able to say, whether I abound or I am abased, at all times and in all places, I am content. That is a contentment that for you and I, in our consumeristic, materialistic age, is hard to fathom. Most of us, we can... We could imagine, you know what, if I only had more, if I only had better, if I had a different situation, a different fill-in-the-blank, then I would be happy and content. And Paul has learned, through the hard lessons of life, that contentment isn't, isn't tied to our circumstances, it is tied to Christ. For if we have Christ, we have all that we need. Whether we have all in this world, all that we have is only for a brief moment of time. It is a blip on the screen. It is here. It is gone again. But if you have Christ, that is eternal. And so Christ himself warns us, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, they'll be added unto you. Trust the Lord. Pursue godliness with contentment. And he gives us some warnings, particularly to pastors and elders and deacons, to church leaders. But these apply to all believers. Verses 11 to 16. He warns us that we must be on watch. That we must be on watch. He tells us first that we ought to keep our eyes on our own lives, our own selves, our own hearts. He says, but you, O man of God, flee these things. That is, all of those things, counterfeit Christianity, get away from it, stay away from it. Instead, not only flee, but pursue. Pursue what? Pursue righteousness, 
godliness that is right living and the pursuit of an open and obedient relationship with the Lord. We are to pursue faith and love. We are to pursue patience and gentleness. Even with those who are counterfeiting Christianity, we are called to be patient and gentle. Why? Because we are trusting that the Lord will himself one day, hoping that the Lord will himself one day grant them repentance, Paul will elsewhere tell us. We are to fight the good fight, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. And here he's, the, the word itself carries the idea of boxing, of wrestling, uh, of running a, a race and being totally spent. Imagine Greco-Roman wrestling and, and two men just going at it, wrestling with themselves, all their strength tied down. That's the picture here. Fight that good faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Fight in this way with all of your strength. But it's not that you and I are to be fighting against others. That's not the implication here. It's not that we are, in the advance of truth, in the interest of truth, we are to argue and debate and fight everyone we can, whether that's in person, whether that's online. The interest isn't that we win an argument. Paul is talking about us fighting the good fight of faith. This is an internal battle that you and I fight within our own hearts, our own desires. The desire to, we are to fight against, the desire to be accepted, the desire to be relevant, the desire to be respected, or the desire for more, more than we are to, more than, what the, more than the desire to, to, to know the Lord and to follow after his ways. It is fighting against the inward pull of counterfeit Christianity because, brothers and sisters, part of what Paul is reminding us here is that the danger to counterfeit, of counterfeit Christianity isn't merely external to you. It's not out there. The knockoff, cheap knockoff Christianity isn't a danger to you merely on television, merely through a book, merely on a radio. The greatest danger to your soul and mine is ourselves. My greatest danger is me. And your greatest danger is you. That your heart would lead you astray. That your desires would lead you away from the truth of God. Watch yourselves. Keep your eyes on your own heart, your own life, your own mind, your own desires. More than this, keep your eyes on your service to Christ. Look with me at verses 13 to 15. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things, all people, and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pilate that you keep this commandment, that is, this commandment, that your commandment to serve, your call to ministry, your work for Christ, to keep that and to keep it without spot, blameless until our Lord's Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. Here you are to pay attention to your own call to serve your own area of ministry we are to serve god in such a way that we are unstained by sin blameless before others in verses 17 and 19 give us the a picture of how this is going to work itself out particularly in timothy's life as he is a pastor and an elder and a church leader what does his use of authority look like Listen to how he is called to leverage his authority, not to subdue those in that church, not to exalt himself, but to serve. 
Read with me, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to be arrogant or proud. That is, and you can understand why that is. Look what I have. Look what you don't have. Clearly, I'm better than you. I am wiser than you. I've made better choices than you. Therefore, I must be a better person than you. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be proud, nor to trust, nor to put their trust in the uncertainty of riches, but to trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich not merely in stuff, but to be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. That is our call. The the pastor is to leverage his authority for the spiritual health of one another, to call the church to repentance, to call us to what God calls us to, for the spiritual well-being of others. And this we are to do until the return of Jesus Christ, until our Lord Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. Not in our time, not on our schedule, but in his own time. And this leads us to that Meditation in verses 15 and 16, where the final thing we are told is we are to keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes on Jesus. He who is the blessed and only potentate, that's a word you've probably not used very often. Potentate. Maybe it's a words for friends winner this week. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. He is the blessed one. That is, he is worthy of all praise. He is the worthy of all blessing. He is himself eternally, infinitely blessed. He is, that word often is connected to our word for happiness. He is infinitely happy. And how could he not be? He who is the only sovereign, the eternal, unchangeable one, never diminishing, never growing weary, never aging out. He is blindingly glorious, dwelling in unapproachable light. And no man can see him, nor has seen him. It's not a picture that, that we should therefore redefine what we read back in the Old Testament where the Lord appears to people. What he is talking about there is that he cannot be understood. He is incomprehensible. The Lord can never be fully known. We will never be able to plumb the depths of his character and goodness and perfection. He is beyond your and mine own intellectual pay grade. He is above us. How could he not be transcendently, infinitely, gloriously, incandescently happy? This is a good God. So as we serve him, we may not serve those around us. You who serve in children's ministry, in the nursery, you are not merely serving those children, you are. And you're not only serving those children, you're serving their families. But more than all of that, you are serving this 
Jesus. You are serving the King of kings and Lord of lords. For those of you who who teach in the student ministries, you lead activities, you sit down with someone through the week and you read the Bible together, you talk over the phone, you encourage someone, all of that you are doing, you are doing it ultimately for this Christ who alone is blessed and worthy of that blessing. All that we do, we do for Christ. And Timothy needs this reminder. You need this reminder. Because as you serve people, one of the things that you're going to find is that people do not like the way you serve. They will have a better idea of what you should do and when you should do it. Which does not mean that your ideas are best and therefore you do what you always want to do. That's not the point. The point is that though there may be others at second guess, we are to serve Christ, our ultimate authority in all that we do. And the ultimate aim of our service is Jesus and Jesus alone. The last call that we see given to Timothy in verse 20 and 21, keep watch over the gospel. Keep watch over the gospel. Oh, Timothy. I love how the New King James translates that with an exclamation point after, the, after Timothy's name. Oh, Timothy. Guard what was committed to your trust. Here he's talking about the gospel in and of itself. What is this gospel? It is the good news of who God is, that he is holy and good and just and righteous and that you and I aren't. It is the honest evaluation, the honest diagnosis that you and I fall far short of all that God commands for us. We are sinners through and through. Do you not find that even when you want to do good for someone else, that there is a selfish motivation somewhere in your heart? This is part of what we will learn. The more we grow in holiness, the more we grow in our desire to be like Christ, the more we will find that sin is rooted deeper and deeper still. We are selfish beings. We are self-centered creatures. And because of that, we deserve God's judgment. He who is the only sovereign, the only worthy one to be blessed and praised, and yet we live for ourselves. What we can get, what we want. And yet, despite that our sin is an infinite offense to an infinite God, yet he in his mercy has provided a way of salvation through Christ Jesus. Christ has come, God sending his own son into the world to die in the place of sinners. And the way that we lay hold of eternal life, the way that we lay hold of what Christ has achieved for us, that forgiveness, that atonement, that covering for our sin, the way we lay hold of it is by repentance and trust in him. Turning and trusting giving up going our own way and seeking to follow after God. 
Guard what was committed to your trust. How do we guard? By proclaiming it. Avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. There are those who will say they know things. But by professing that, some have strayed concerning the faith. For us to avoid counterfeit Christianity, for us to follow and persevere and endure, we cannot do this on our own. It is going to require God's grace. Is it not? And so Paul writes at the very end, his last words to Timothy, his last words to that church in Ephesus at this time, and his last words to you and I in this letter, grace be with you. Grace be with you. These words are a reminder of what we need. Grace. God's grace. God himself. And it's not just a reminder of what we need. It's not, I hope grace is with you. It is grace be with you. Grace will be with you. It is the promise that God himself, in his grace, will be with us. In the early part of the 20th, early part of the 4th century, a conflict began to arise. It was really in the latter part of the 3rd century, in the early part of the 4th century, a conflict began to arise within Christianity. A form of teaching that would become known, uh, become associated with the, the teacher who had begun teaching it, a man by the name of Arius, and the teaching became known as Arianism, not to be confused with the Arianism of racial or white supremacy, but uh, this teaching, it proposed that Christ himself was not God, was not one with God, but rather he was merely the first or greatest created being. He, there was God, and then Jesus was the first and best being under him. And it began to teach, and, be, and this teaching began to find widespread foothold all throughout Christian churches there in the West, there through in Europe and North Africa. And in 325, the Council of Nicaea with over three months, deliberated and debated and was able to produce what we now call the Nicene Creed, which is a a wonderful statement of faith that has stood the test of time. But the controversy didn't end there. There was one individual who, both at the Council of Nicaea before and after, had really been at the forefront of this debate that as he had been fighting and standing for the truth, a man by the name of Athanasius. And though the council had ended and had produced a wonderful document, Athanasius himself became the, the target for all of the efforts of those who opposed this truth. And those who believed in this teaching of Arius, they began to use every underhanded, every political maneuver they could to undermine and destroy Athanasius himself. So at one point, they accused Athanasius of murdering a significant church leader who was his opponent, murdering him and cutting off that man's hands to be used in a magical, uh, in a magical way, to to, to be used for magic and sorcery. And they had convinced this one man to go into hiding so that they could uh, make this claim against Athanasius. Well, one of Athanasius' deacons, while while 
there's a, a massive court hearing that is held and Athanasius himself is being tried. One of Athanasius' deacons stumbles across this man who is supposedly who supposedly had been killed by Athanasius, he finds him in a monastery and he, he kidnaps him, brings him to the courtroom, but hides him, covers him up, puts a hood over his head, brings him in, and so he, can, he is concealed until the time when the accusations are made and Athanasius begins to make his defense. And as part of his defense, he calls this man up. And you can almost imagine the scene. And make great television, right? Athanasius, I couldn't have killed this man. Well, why not? And he uncovers the man. Here is the man you claimed I, who claims I have killed. As part, of this, as part of this whole court drama, before Athanasius had gotten up to make his claim, they had produced a single severed hand, the accusers had, in an effort to be able to say Athanasius had removed it. And so as part of this whole revealing, Athanasius uncovers one of this man's hands. And the witnesses that we have describe the tension in the courtroom at that time. Does he have his other hand? And Athanasius uncovers his other hand. Here, this man is alive with both hands. And it would seem that Athanasius would be seen to be true and right. But his enemies were unsatisfied. And they made a further accusation against him to Constantine himself. And Constantine, who felt threatened, exiled Athanasius. And this was the first of three exiles, banishments, that Athanasius himself would experience. Cast aside, abandoned, exiled into the desert cared for only by the people of his church. It was said of Athanasius that he was contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this world is no friend of grace. But God promises that his grace will be with those who stand for his truth. Maintain your hold on the Lord. Trust in Christ and follow after what he says in his word. It alone is true. It alone leads us to the glorious salvation of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We ask for your mercy. We pray, O Lord, that you will draw near to us and strengthen us in the days and years ahead. That our lives, no matter what difficulty we may face, no matter what courts may say, no matter what laws are passed, no matter which way the cultural winds blow, Father, would you teach us to anchor ourselves on you and on what you have said, on your unchanging, your word. Oh God, work in us, have mercy on us, strengthen us for this task. 
that you, O God, may be known, that you may be rejoiced in and glorified in, that the gospel may go forward. Do this, O God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.